The primary kind of evidence that we've been examining in this series is the changed lives of people who encountered Jesus after He rose from the dead. The power of the resurrection, how it changed people's lives. And we, we looked at uh, some people who were outsiders in their culture and how encountering Jesus gave them a sense of purpose and significance and meaning in their life. And we looked at uh, someone who was suffering from doubts, a skeptic, and how Jesus gave him the proof that he needed. We looked at last week uh, an individual who failed miserably. He denied Jesus three times, Peter, and yet Jesus restored him. The, the risen Lord Jesus restored his purpose and his identity and completely turned around the future and the direction of his life. Today we're looking at something a little bit different because we're looking at a person who seemed like he had it all together, especially in the religious uh, part of his life. Maybe you've been that person where you were uh, really, a, you know, really obeyed all the rules of the church or you really were working hard to try to be righteous before God. Or maybe you tried to be that person. Or maybe people laid the expectation on you to be that person. Or maybe you looked at that person and you said, no way am I ever going to try to live up to that image. But I want you to think about in light of our series today, Let's say if you have someone who is very successful at living a religious life, someone with a, this, a, an outstanding religious heritage and a top-notch uh, resume, and someone who is very scrupulous about following all of the rules and the rituals, how would an encounter with the risen Jesus Christ change that person? Think of that person. What would Jesus transform about their life? And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to introduce you to the Apostle Paul before he, he met Jesus and then what happened after. And what we're going to see from his experience is that, that when you encounter Jesus, it's going to turn your whole approach to God upside down because Jesus invites you to come to God not on the basis of religious achievement but simply on the basis of knowing and trusting Him. That's our premise today. Let's pray together as we get into that. Father, thank You so much that You care about us individually, that You have in mind a purpose for us, for our lives, that You want us to have relationship with You, that You reach out to us, that You call us and invite us to know You. And so today, Father, we'd be, we would be reinforced in that, that we'd remember what we, where we've been, that we would have our eyes open to something maybe we've never thought about before, that we'd be encouraged about your life-transforming power in us through Jesus, your Son. And so we ask you to meet us, speak to us today, give us your power, Father, to experience the changes that you want to make in our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So first of all, let's meet this guy, Paul. His originally, his name was Saul. That's what his parents called him, and he grew up. So he's seen in the Bible as Saul, and then, then he becomes Paul at some point on. And then the first thing is we look at his life and his background, the first thing we see that he was very successful at living a religious life. But we see almost, almost paradoxically that his confidence in his own religious goodness actually turned him against Jesus. 
So he was, a, he was, when we meet him in the Bible, he's this very successful up-and-comer in the religious world of Judaism. He's a star on the making as a young celebrity, and he had all the right background. He had the right pedigree, all the right associations. He hung around with the right people. He had the right training. He had this brilliant mind, this academic mind, and he was trained by the best voices, the best teachers in Judaism. So he had a, this great resume, and here's how he describes it himself. This is his own reflection on looking back at that time in his life, Philippians chapter 3. He says, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. So he says, I had every reason to be confident before God in my own efforts. If anybody did, it was me. He's looking back and he's saying, man, because he was a dyed-in-the-wool, true blue Israelite. He had all the right the way he was raised, his family heritage, all the rest. And he was part of the strictest sect of Judaism, the Pharisees, who demanded scrupulous obedience down to the letter of the law. He was zealous. He said he was so zealous that he persecuted the church. He was obedient in everything. And so we look at this picture and say, wow, this guy, this guy had it together in his, in his religious life. Nobody probably was more serious about his life than he was. And he said, in fact, he said, I was so zealous, I persecuted the church. And he, he goes into that, explains that a little bit more fully in another place in Acts 26. He tells somebody, he says, I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus the Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priests, I caused many believers there to be sent to prison. And I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. So he's so dedicated to defending traditional Judaism, his, his choice of faith, his loyalty and his, his identity was so tied up in that. He wasn't just an ivory tower kind of academic approach, but he became this energetic activist who's tracking down Christians wherever he can find them to stop what he sees as a threat to the faith that he, that he identifies so deeply with. Nobody was more committed than him. Nobody was more sincere about living out their faith, their religion, than he was. But, you know, we're going to see as we look at the extension of his life as that plays out that he was sincerely wrong. See, zeal and sincerity don't necessarily equate with truth. And we'll see what, what that means later on. Because here's the thing. You might look at a guy like, like Paul or Saul at the time who was so zealous and so committed and so religiously engaged, you might think, man, that guy, that guy's probably the leading candidate to become a follower of Jesus. But in reality, it was his religious credentials and his religious commitments that actually made him less likely to be a Christ follower. Here's how that works. Because the good news message that Jesus brought into the world, 
He came to let us know that even though we're sinners, that we can be right with God. The God who made us, that we're separated from God, but that, can be, that rift can be healed. And that Jesus actually paid the price to, to heal that rift when He died on the cross. In our place, to take the penalty that God had assigned to our sins, He took that upon Himself. And so, the, the gospel, the message of good news is that, that Jesus is enough, that, that our good deeds can't add anything to what He's done, and in fact, they don't need to, that, that He did everything we need. So why would a guy like Paul feel a need for that? Because he had it going. He checked all the boxes. He was supremely confident in his own righteousness before God. And so, you know, it's actually that confidence in himself and in his his religious faith that made him hostile to everything that Jesus represented. Because here's the thing, maybe you've noticed this. I don't know, when you meet people who put a lot of stock in their own worthiness... You meet people who have a lot of pride in their own righteousness, that then what Jesus did on the cross is minimized. It's just not that big of a deal anymore for that person. I think this is the biggest obstacle to biblical kind of faith in Jesus. The biggest obstacle for religious people is that you have to admit that you have nothing to offer to God. You have to admit that your worthiness and all of your effort and energy, that that doesn't impress God one bit. That's that's a hard pill to swallow. You have to admit that your heart sins, the sins that are buried deep in your heart, your attitude and pride and all the rest, that that's just as evil before God as somebody else's outward deeds. So it's possible to talk like a Christian, to quote the Bible, to be really active in a church, to give all you've got for God, to live a scrupulous moral life. It's possible to live all of that and still be on the wrong side of Jesus, to still be on the outside looking in when it comes to God. And that's where Paul was at. He's very successful at living a religious life. He's the epitome. He never met anybody who's as good at, it, at that as he is, and yet... And yet, he was hostile toward Jesus. And so as hard as it is for a super religious person to come to legitimate faith in Christ, it's not impossible because there's the rest of the story here. Nobody's without hope. You know, I bet there were Christians at that time who were praying, praying for God to just like kind of get rid of Paul, praying for him like to snuff him out. I don't think... Anybody in the Christian world at that time, as Paul is persecuting, I don't think anybody of them could have imagined that God could change Paul's life the way he did. So let's take a look and see what happened. We see that Paul had a surprise encounter with the resurrected Christ. And in one moment, his entire approach to God was turned upside down. Now, given Paul's activity toward Christians... We're about to see one of the most absolutely surprising events in the whole Bible. It certainly surprised Paul, and it definitely surprised all of the Christians who became aware of it. His story is told in Acts chapter 9, and among other places, but in Acts chapter 9, we see the the, the briefest account of it. It says, as Paul was approaching Damascus on this mission, the mission of eradicating Christianity... 
As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Wow. So Jesus has ascended into heaven by this time. So he comes back and he engages Paul in this heavenly vision, this personal encounter on the road to Damascus. Paul is just knocked on the floor. He's actually blinded by this vision. Jesus sends him into Damascus to meet a, a Christian named Ananias, and he preps Ananias for that. Ananias takes him in for a few days and helps him to understand what's going on, and he prays for him, and he's healed of his blindness. But I thought, you know, this is, this is God's opportunity to terminate the threat. Like this, maybe God could have given the, church, the persecuted church some relief and some justice, but he didn't do that. Certainly, Paul deserved that. But God has this way of giving us not what we deserve, right, but what we don't deserve. Jesus had a mission for Saul. As you read down in Acts chapter 9, you see that, that Jesus is calling him to go not just to the Jewish people, that he, his own people, but even beyond that, to go to the, the whole empire of Rome, the whole Roman world, and even to talk to kings about Jesus. And so you see in chapter 9 and down in verse 19... You see that Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they asked? And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? So he's just within a couple days, he's out preaching about Jesus, saying that this Jesus whom he used to oppose is actually the Son of God. He's a divine being. And everybody is totally amazed. Who could have imagined that this guy would change in that incredible way, just like overnight? And so Jesus doesn't just say to Saul, hey, stop persecuting me. Go find yourself a different career. Go teach college or start a business or, or something like that. No, Jesus says to him, look, I'm going to take your zeal and your intellect and your boldness and your energy and everything that you've invested against me, and now we're going to use that for me. But you know, there's a change here that's even deeper than that. This is far deeper even than his change of purpose and direction in life what we're going to see is we're going to look back in Philippians 3 for a moment, and we're going to see that, see, remember Paul put so much importance on his religious activity and his heritage and his obedience and his efforts, and we're going to see that when he met Jesus, what really changed the most was actually his whole fundamental approach to God. Now, often people from some kind of religious background or another will come and visit us here at Alpine Church, and we're, everyone is welcome, as you know. And, um, but, but sometimes when people who have a religious way of thinking about things come and visit with us, they come in with, with kind of a certain um, perspective on things that can often be, be mistaken. Okay, here's what I'm talking about. Sometimes people come in and think the real difference at Alpine Church is that we're just kind of less demanding. All right, that we just have less rules than wherever they're coming out of, you know. No, I just want to say, that's not it, okay? That is not it at all. 
The real difference is we're not approaching God by rules at all. We're not just some kinder, gentler version of of what you have experienced in the past. We're not just kind of religion light. It's not like we don't care about how people live, but this is a completely different thing that we're talking about. And we can see that if we look back at Philippians chapter 3 and see Paul's reflections on his own experience, we saw how much confidence he put in his, all of his religious accomplishments, right? Well, let's see how he reflected on that in retrospect, looking back in Philippians 3, jumping down to verse 7. <clears throat> Paul says, I once thought these things were valuable, all the stuff he listed, you know, in those previous verses. I once thought this was all so valuable, but now I consider all these things worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And for His sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with Him. He says, man, all of my religious achievements, all of those pursuits, they're worthless. He has, he has actually contempt for the person, the religious person that he was before. All of that Sabbath observance, all of following the kosher food laws, all of the tithes he paid, all of the scriptures he, that he memorized, he says, all oh, that's garbage. And honestly, the word that he uses there is actually in the original Greek, it's a word that we don't say out loud in polite company. That's how strongly he felt about all of that. Now, the point is that, that yeah, yeah, there's some value in, in having a religious upbringing and maybe giving you a moral compass or helping you to make the most out of life or whatever, but he's saying what he's really talking about is those things are worthless in terms of what it means to know God. Those are worthless as a vehicle to put us into relationship with God. And he says, why are they worth this? Why? Because of what Christ has done. What Jesus has done renders all the rest so that it doesn't matter. Because all of our religious activity can never add anything to what Jesus has already accomplished. What counts to God for our eternal life and eternal future is not what we've done, but only what Jesus has done for us. It's like, I don't know, I don't know if you know somebody who's an artist. I, I know some people who are great artists in ability. And one time, one of our friends painted a, a lovely picture, a landscape from England, and gave it to us as a gift. You know, and it was beautiful. I have it, we have it hanging up in the office. And it's just a beautiful picture. And my impulse when we were given that gift was, let me tell you this, my impulse was not to go get the markers and to see if I could improve what she had done, right? That would be ridiculous, wouldn't that? First of all, it would be an offense to her. Second of all, it would be arrogant on my part to think that I could outdo what she did, that I could add anything. I'm going to draw in a little sun with a little rays, you know, or a little stick figure. No way. But that's what a lot of us are trying to do with what Jesus has given us. That's the religious impulse to think, here's what Jesus has done. Now I can add something to improve that by me being a righteous person or a good person to make myself worthy before God. You see, here's here's part of the big transformation with Paul. He had to swallow his pride. He had to admit that his, his righteousness really didn't count 
before God to get him into that status. He had to admit, like, this is hard to admit that you've climbed, you spent your whole life climbing the ladder. And all the work that you put into that, and then you get to the top and you realize the ladder's leaning against the wrong wall. This is it's a hard thing to, to admit that all the things you've been doing all of your life long, that they've earned you a big stack of bills, and, and then you look and you realize, oh, I've got a ton of Monopoly money. And I go to cash it in with God, and God says, that's not real. That's not real money. I can't take that. So you'll never hear Paul say, well, I'm a good person. I hear religious people say that a lot. Well, I'm a good person. In fact, what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, I am the worst of all sinners. Paul, the apostle, the guy who achieved all this perfect outward righteousness, he says, no, I'm the worst of all sinners. And so that experience on the Damascus Road, it it completely changed the direction and purpose of Paul's life 180 degrees, and it also completely turned his whole approach to God upside down and inside out. Now here's where I want to, let me bring it home here. I want you to understand that Paul's story is proof that Jesus really did rise from the dead. That's fitting with our series. But the other thing I want you to understand, it also proves that, that Jesus can be found by anybody who's willing to admit that they've got it wrong. So in this series, we've seen plenty of evidence to trust in the credibility of the resurrection. We saw these women uh, who were eyewitnesses. Jesus called them to be eyewitnesses. And in that culture, they were not even allowed to testify in court. And so why would anybody, if they're making up the story of the resurrection, why would they put the, the, the message in the mouths of, of people who were not deemed credible in that culture? That doesn't make sense. The reason it, they did that, wrote that that way is because that's what happened. And then these women encountered the tomb and it was empty. And nobody's ever been able to answer what happened to the body of Jesus. Where'd it go? And a guy like Paul, if the body of Jesus was somewhere, a guy like Paul would have, would, in his old days, would have put it on a cart and paraded it through the streets of Jerusalem to totally debunk this whole myth of resurrection and Christianity is done, finished. And then there's eyewitnesses. We've talked about that the last few weeks, how 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that Jesus appeared to more, more than 500 people in different times and places, and some of them wrote down their story, and we've got it in the Bible. And then we saw last week the evidence of Peter's changed life of how he was a coward, denied Jesus three times, and suddenly he became this bold spokesman for Christ, declaring to everybody that Jesus had risen from the dead, and he faced suffering and punishment. He was flogged for that. Eventually he gave up his life for that very testimony. We talked about how nobody suffers death for something that they know to be a lie. So all kinds of different evidence. Let's add Paul's story to this. How do you account for the complete change of direction in his life that just happened overnight? I want you to think about Saul, uh, Paul's psychological state for a minute. Because a lot of times, you know, people can wi- wish themselves into a conclusion, right? A lot of times we have an experience, a reported experience that confirms what we will really want to be true, Right? Well, what about Paul? What in the world was going on in his life that would make him want the outcome that he got? 
There's nothing in his psychological state that would prepare him for this to happen. He wasn't looking for this to happen, just the opposite. And if he did make it up, if we argue that he made this up, then what possibly could be the motive for him to do that, given who he was before? It is so unlikely that this could have happened. It's as unlikely as Donald Trump endorsing Bernie Sanders or vice versa. How you go like, what? If that happened, you go, oh my gosh, what happened? Or as the Palestinians raising the Israeli flag. Those just, it's just not going to happen. And so we have to answer, why did Paul experience this overnight change? And I believe the best explanation for the radical sudden change that he experienced was that his meeting with Jesus was real. Jesus really is alive. Now let's make it personal, bring it home here. His encounter with Jesus made Paul rethink everything about his relationship with God. And so his response invites us to think about our response as well. So here's where we go back to Philippians chapter 3, and we want to play out Paul's train of thought there as he's comparing the old with the new. And in verse 9, he continues, he says, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. He says, what am I counting on to be right with God? He says, rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. So I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. And I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. So Paul, he tells us this is how we can be made right with God. This is how we can be righteous before God, before our Creator. He says, look, I used to think it was through my religious activity and my fervor and my obedience I was counting on that. But he says, I realized that was bankrupt. So, So what is the path now? He says, we become righteous before God through faith in Christ. Now, faith isn't isn't just believing in certain facts, but the biblical word of faith means trusting in or relying in. What am I trusting in to be right with God? Where do I put my confidence? And he says that what he learned in his encounter with Jesus is that we must shift what we rely on from our own effort to Jesus and Jesus alone and what he did for us. Got to be Jesus plus nothing. And that becomes ours when we appropriate it by faith, by trusting in Him. That's really, really hard for religious people to get their head around because it's so different. I mean, I grew up in that environment. I know it's so, it's so different from what I was taught, from what I expected and, and thought was a normal approach to God. And when we talk this way, here's one of the pushbacks I get a lot is I get... I get this misconception that people have that if, you just, if it's just faith, well, that's too easy. You know, Paul's life was really demanding before he came to Christ. He's doing all these things, and he's filling all these, these boxes, and now you're saying it's just faith? You just believe? Well, then that just means, right, that anything goes, right? That you just pray a prayer, and you can go out and live however you want to live and do whatever you want to do, Right? No, that's a complete misrepresentation of the biblical perspective, and you can see in Paul's own life that that's not what happened with him. In fact, you could really argue that Paul's new approach here is actually more demanding, but in a different way. More demanding because 
in verse 10, he says, I want to share in his suffering. I want to die for him. I want to die with him. Not just martyrdom, physical death, but, but to die to anything that keeps me from knowing Jesus more deeply, more fully, more intimately, from being united to him. And so Paul's confidence in his own righteousness had to die. You think that was easy? Trusting Jesus alone is not e- the easy way out because it calls for total allegiance, not to a church, but to Jesus. Not to a human leader or prophet, but to Jesus. It calls for total allegiance, not to the rules, but to Jesus. And if you look at Paul's life after this, he didn't just go on vacation after he met Jesus. He didn't just start living an easy life. He traveled the ancient world and put his life at risk because Jesus had called him into a new life and a new mission. So he traded this empty, lifeless approach to God based on tradition and worthiness and achievement. He traded that in for a full and meaningful approach to life and to God based on being intimately connected to Jesus. So Jesus is alive. And He's still at work in the world, and He's still calling people to Himself, and He wants to meet you and turn your life around. And So if you're striving to come to God through rules and rituals that are rooted in your own righteousness and your own effort, then Paul's example shows that that's not going to get you any closer to God. You want to be right with God. You want to be forgiven of your sins. It's not about measuring up to some church or some religious system. It's about Jesus and what He's done for us. Jesus told Paul, it's all about faith in me. Stop trusting in yourself, in your own goodness, in your religion, in your church, and put all of your trust in Jesus and Him alone. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. That's enough. That's enough. Jesus is enough. And so where do you stand today? Have you entrusted your life and your eternity to Jesus Christ? I urge you to take that step today. I urge you to come talk to us. If if you want to understand more about what that is, let's start a conversation. Come talk to us about that before you go home today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you care about us so much. You want a relationship with us, that you invite us to know you. Thank you so much, God, that you paid the price. You made the way for us to be reconciled to you, our sins forgiven, for us to experience the best of life, a new life, empowered by the resurrection of Jesus. I pray each one of us would grapple with that today and remember what that's like and and stop trying to come to you on the basis of our empty works, but to entrust our lives fully in Jesus. And we're going to let you change our life and you transform us. And, and then our, our lives will, will reflect that, the gratitude of, of what you've done for us. So help us to get there, Father, we pray. I pray that you'd speak to each one of us uniquely, right to the heart of what's going on in our life today. You know us so well and that we'd respond to you and you'd empower us to take the appropriate steps. And we pray it in Jesus' name for his honor and glory. Amen.